This is David Wilson, and welcome to episode 61 of On Another Track. So I totally get where you're coming from. And it's funny, when I heard when I heard your English, I thought that's British English. That's not American English. I could tell, you know, straight off the bat. What I'm doing is to bring the best of my knowledge to practice connecting the dots. It's B2B, it's outdoor furniture for hospitality and commercial spaces. That's the voice this week of Paul Duan, my guest. He is the founder and owner of Paul Duan Creations. Welcome along to my podcast series on another track. We're here to explore people and places from around the world. We hear the stories that have transformed my guest's journey and help them get on another track. It's not always pretty, but if you need that practical advice to figure out the roadblocks ahead, then you can't go wrong by learning from other people's mistakes. It's an enlightening experience and a great journey. I first got to know about Paul through Ron France, one of my first guests ever on another track. And Ron told me about Paul doing this great furniture in California, which was very unique, very clean, and very, very classic in many ways. I wanted to speak to this guy. What I hadn't realized was the great culture that Paul came from, bringing classic designs all the way from Asia, but then adapting them for the North American market. What's even more unique about Paul's company is that he can do a quick ship program to have that product to you within two or three days. Listen as Paul tells us about his journey from Asia to America, but not forgetting his mantra, respect the market and don't let the ego get in the way. I started by asking Paul exactly where he was located in California and how long had he been in the furniture business? I'm in LA, basically Southern California, a little bit east to LA. I'm in the outdoor furniture business. I am a designer and engineer. I've been around in the business for 21, 22 years. I basically don't know anything else but outdoor furniture. Maybe a little bit of landscape photography, if you may say, but um, I'm definitely an outdoor furniture guy. And the business what I'm in is that I design and run a business of premium hospitality outdoor furniture. In other words, the outdoor furniture that people have in hotels and restaurants and country clubs and um, universities. And some of them will use my furniture in the parks. I mean, site furnishing, so to speak, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, those type of things. And I sell B2B for my warehouse in Southern California. Fantastic. It's a very small program. I mean, I mean, a pretty hands-on designer-based and engineering-based program. And and really, to be fair, that's how we all start, isn't it? If you're in that kind of design manufacturing business, you have to start generally quite small unless you've got lots of investment behind you. Yes, it, it's it's actually a choice as well, because, you you know, it, it, a lot of people will start a business borrowing money from the bank and, and try to expand it, try to say, hey, come to me. You know, this is common, you know, businessmanship, you know, um, slogans that come to me. I have everything. My price is the best. My quality is the best. I, I chose a, a path where I only connect the dots, where it's most effective. The, the, you know, I, I, I try to do a portrait of the best of the best according to my 22 years of experience and and i'm very hands-on i only do what i think i'm better than average <laughs> hopefully and so the end result is my program is very focused it's not for everybody for sure it's mid-high range in marketplace i would say it's very much design and engineering oriented it's high quality however i can't get everything in one plate 
the shortcoming, I'll be honest with you, and the audience, the, the weak side of my, my program, it's, it's not a big program. I only have about seven to eight collections. That's it. <laughs> but, but try to be effective, try to be different, yes. I was going to say, it's still a great uh, number of collections to because to put a collection together just t- does take some effort. So, l- explain to us how you kind of got into the industry. What inspired you to start to be involved in furniture design? Well, that was not really a choice, I guess. This is about twenty-two years back in two thousand, two thousand one. I um, I bumped him into a, another job, which happens to be in the factory. And the factory, this is this is an era when uh, a bunch of Taiwanese investors moved into China with the you know with the chain of manufacturing. You know, from Taiwan to China, basically, I think dated back to the nineties, the nineteen nineties, where you know experienced Taiwanese manufacturers, in in order to lower down the cost, manufacture from out of Taiwan, they moved their production line to China. China was the middle of the big blooming era of opening. They have a bunch of wonderful policies to welcome foreign investments. I was in that factory, and I still remember the boss by the name of Roger, who I feel very, very thankful. And he told me, you, you got to come back to the basic, which is manufacturing. You know, these are the older generation that they, they have a little bit of prejudice on, on IT and e-commerce and those type of things who believe that, you know, you got to really understand business in the terms of, you know, the backbone physical productions and I was into it and I started off as a little pin nobody little boy in, in the, on the factory floor the, the first jobs I started I was just following the quality inspections so we because we're a factory making outdoor furniture for the big box retailers here in the United States like Home Depot Walmart you name it Sears Lowe's and these guys and I was just I was that little kid following the pre-shipment inspection team. I still remember the bloody cold days where I have to put everything I could around my neck and it was cold, huge factory building. And I was, you know, following the inspectors, measuring out the plastic foot glides of the of the chairs and, and, and studied the tolerance level of the width of the chairs. And this that's exactly how I started. But then I, I found myself into be into the manager, merchandise manager, you know, a little bit of a captain. So we were doing business with the trading company. So I found myself involving in, in in quotings and numbers and such. So we were a huge factory back then. I remember we had, you know, weavers, right? The labor guys, the weave, the wicker chairs, the outdoor wicker chairs. Yeah, At yeah. one point, the factory had six thousand weavers. Wow. It was a factory of more than 12,000 workers. I'm not talking about executive, administrative. So the point that I'm trying to make is that with that huge of a factory, because I was in charge of quoting everything, we were making like five points of profit. Right. Probably less than five points with, with that huge factory. That's tight. And the trading company, listen to this, a trading company of about, 15 people, 12 people, we're making about 35% margin. Oh, wow. What a difference, eh? Yes. And then with the factories growing step by step, I was the guy because my English background, I guess I, as I told you, I studied, I studied English language and literature. I was the guy who was basically translating between my factory R&D and European American furniture designers because I, I had to do the translating in development. And then with the development of the factory, the factory one day finds itself to be more capable of going direct. 
meaning, you know, back in that age, I think it's about 2005 or six, a lot of factories found themselves more capable to directly sell into the big box retailers. Well, the big box retailers like Walmart and Lowe's, they, they, they want to buy it direct from the factory. So we're at the point where we could basically qualify ourselves to selling direct. So all of a sudden, we started to sell directly to these big box retailers. And of course, we have to have our own R&D office and department of, of, of designs. And I'd find myself the head of R&D and have the head of design department because I, I just learned. So this is a good, good example of how I, I, I stepped up the ladder, not administrative ladders. The, the, I would say the ladder of knowledge. Um, because I was able to pick up, you know, because with this process, as you can imagine, I was able to pick up knowledge on quality, cost, packaging, assembly, right, price, quoting, working with the sales team. Because, you know, when direct, we have our own sales guys from the North American market who reports to my boss, the general manager. So I was able to see a little bit of everything. And then... I got tired of quoting and negotiating because this is, this is, it's not a pleasant job to do negotiating, at least not for me. You know, I, I took no pride in, in getting prices and, and I found definitely found more joy in designing. So I started tracing the hand sketches of some master designers in my industry, for example, by uh, there's a gentleman by, by the name of Richard Furnier, who designs for Brown Jordan and, and Century Furniture. And I, and I found myself tracing uh, their, their hand sketches and learning about perspective and everything. That's fascinating. I mean, it just, it just, oh, yeah. It, because I, I was lucky enough, still today, I couldn't help still feeling lucky. I, I was the guy who could literally see the entire chain starting off from a very vague imagination in my mind about a look of a chair or a look of a table, a look of an extrusion, and literally started designing the section profile of a three millimeter synthetic plastic yarn. I'd literally designed a section profile of a outdoor wicker extrusion defined by a thousands of a millimeter you know you know what i'm talking about the section profile i, I totally understand that yeah i totally understand that yeah. all the way you know then, then there's the cushion style there's the choices of fabrics then there's there's this the structural designing of a, of a chair then there's the comfort the testing the finishes the packaging the configuration all the way to now a a, a glamour landscape photography shot of a beautiful um, country club by a cliff of Southern California. I was able to see the entire scope. So really what I'm sort of getting from what you've said is that, and, and it's the same in architecture and design because that's where I come from, All right. is I had exactly this. yeah, I had exactly the same background to you where I, I, let, I learned everything from inception, idea, the seed of idea. Yeah, we're so spoiled, aren't we? <laughs> well, we are because you know we've we learned all the processes all the way through to pricing, negotiating, sales. I did yeah. all that onto site, project management, that type of thing. So I think we came from an amazing background that really sort of made us very rich in terms of the tapestry in which we were woven in. Do you know what I mean? It was everything was in there, you know. Right. But I liked your comment. I liked your comment about the down to the you know the quality control bit, which is so so important when it comes to doing a final product. 
product and getting it out the door. Because the last thing you want to do is you, you, you have great design, you have great manufacturing, but you fall down on quality control because when it gets to the customer, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. You know, it lets you down. Right. So what was great is you had that amazing background. So I want to just back the bus up a little mm. bit, right? So you got you got inspired by the designs of some of the amazing furniture designers of the 20th century, I imagine, and some of the people that were very close to you. Right. When you were sketching or when you were tracing over those designs, what you were really saying there was you could visualize in three dimensions in your own mind, so to speak, what that was going to look like. Is that right? Yeah, I had to. I, I think it's a little bit related. I, I didn't study design at all when I was in school. I mean, I, as I told you, I'm, I majored in English language and literature. So um, I guess it's probably related to calligraphy. Chinese uh, calligraphy when I was a kid. So th there's a lot of things in common when it comes to Chinese calligraphy. Now hear this, when it comes to the visual balance, all right? You understand what I'm talking about? Totally. So if you can't write or use the brush, you know, traditional Chinese um, brush pen, write a Chinese character, it's like a man standing there. I mean, he has to be reasonably balanced, left to right, top to bottom. Exactly the same simple theory applies to a chair design. You cannot design a chair that is visually looking like it will flip over backwards and forward. Now, there are designs like that, but may I add that there's actually designs like that, but will it stand the test of time? Most of them won't. So he's exactly with the masters coming, like Richard Fenier, uh, Richard Schultz, who designed 1966 chair. Um, it, it, his chair is literally, literally, you probably know this chair. His, his chair is literally named 1966. Now, 60 bloody years have passed. People are still talking about his chair being modern. Absolutely. Those types of designs have got to, un have got to be standing there well-balanced. It cannot, it cannot have a, a, a back leg that is a lot thicker than the front legs. You know what I'm saying? It, it, those things, and, and, and the, same, the same thing applies to photography, now that I'm into photography. It's exactly the same simple thing. Yeah, no, and I totally get that. Be, again, being a designer myself, I, I, my mind's eye sees what looks right and what doesn't look right, you know, and it's very interesting. You can relate it to lots of things. The best example, other than furniture, is cars, for instance. Oh, yeah. If you look at the classic shapes of vehicles, the ones that stand the test of the time are the ones with the great proportions and curves. Exactly. For some reason, you know, they seem to work. There's something about curves and about the weight. So you look at the Volkswagen Beetle classic. You took the word out of my mouth, David. Yeah. I was just to, to say the Beetles, uh, the Beetles, and then even the Mini Cooper, the Porsche. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to allow me to then just a little bit about the current on the car design. Jesus Christ, me and my friend, we're looking at the scene. I mean, I'm sorry if I offend some audience out there who are, you know, the new BMW. Yeah, you, you carry I have a problem with them. The, the, the front grills become gigantically oversized. It's just, it just sickeningly oversized, huge um, intakes. And the, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the front beam lights are becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And I was talking to my designer friend, am I alone in this? Is, this is just plumb not proportionally healthy. And, and, and my designer friend by the name of Robert Neymar, he said, no, Paul, you're not alone. <laughs> so in other words, there's this trend, all right? But a trend doesn't necessarily mean that every single little leg of a trend would last forever, 
right? Correct. Yeah. An existence of a certain of a certain trend does it mean that everybody should follow? So what I'm after when you know looping back to design is hopefully that I can look up to the Northern Star designers like Mr. Richard Finier, like Richard Schultz, that my design can last a little bit longer. <laughs> that's my those are the designers that I look up to like like, like the Northern Star. So that's that's why going back to mature, right? Or crafted. It's it's not just, hey, look at me, I look cool. It's deeper than that. It's more mature than that. And may I say it's a bit humbler than that. It, it, this, it related to that, it, you, you, as a designer, you have to cast away personal ego. It's a tough thing to do. Very, very tough. Because as, as a designer, you, you feed off that kind of adulation, you know, that people like your design. I would say it's one of the greatest challenges as a designer, at least in industrial design. I'm not sure about fine arts. Probably when it comes to fine arts, the only thing you're about is to express yourself. I don't even, that could even be wrong, a, 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 a false statement. I, I am not entitled to judge. However, when it comes to commercial designs and industrial designs, it is a big challenge. You have to believe in yourself. You have to be able to artistically opine to, to identify a difference. However, you have to respect the market. You have to not allow your personal ego to take away from, from where the market is. It's more, more or less like a, like a balance. Again, we're talking about balance, right? Which is a great Chinese or ancient um, oriental philosophy. It's the balance. Uh, my wife and I used to joke about when we drove around, I was, I was like, oh, oh, this chair is so ugly. My wife said, why are you so judgmental? And I, and, I, and I couldn't help defending myself. I go, wait a minute. If, if, if everything to my eye is no problem, if everything to my eyes is okay, it, well, it's all right. This one is okay. That one is okay. How the heck am I able to, to tell, to, to create better ones if I cannot tell? In a way, I mean, let's get down to it. Seriously, it's, it's just good and bad to my eyes. That, that one is good enough. That one is not good enough, right? I have to be able to talk. But meanwhile, as a designer, you have to, you have to cast away your ego. This is not about yourself. And, and, and this is thinking for people. It's, it's, it's very, very tough. It can be. I still get offended sometimes when people say they don't like my designs and this and that. It, I'd still get you know, emotionally uncomfortable, uh, you know, if you allow me to be uh, honest, but in the design world, you're not designing for yourself. You're designing for the public. I, I love what you just said there. You know, you still get upset when people criticize your design and that's lovely because that's normal. You know, that's a normal human emotion, it's, right? Well, allow me to rephrase David, not upset, uncomfortable. <laughs> okay, well, that's fair enough. It's a little bit psychologically uncomfortable, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm not um, really upset about it. But it takes a great designer to have the attitude and think. Well, uh, by the way, I'm going to mention the name of my my good friend Robert Mainville, and I learned a lot from he, from him in the attitude. He was like, when he comes across with a different opinion or something that does it doesn't know, he would say, "Oh, really? All right, let me find out why he said so." Let me find out. Let me let me let me flip the rock to understand why he's saying he has he has a different opinion than that of mine. Let me roll up my sleeve and find out. You know what I'm saying? 
instead of, oh, they don't know me. Get out of my sight. You know, you're, you're not as high in design as I am. That is an attitude where I hope most of the designers, especially the young designers, you know, stay away from, which is a challenge, of course. Yeah, here, here. I totally get it. I mean, you know, I often think any criticism at all about anything within so the design sphere is a request for more information. Tell me a bit more about why you don't like it, because that's how we learn and evolve. But I wanted to just really kind of go back to where you get your inspiration for your designs, because, you know, as far as most people are concerned, they sit in a chair, they sit at a table, they use the table to, to eat at, you know, it's a functional yes. uh, part of the design. A lot of people... Um, won't necessarily look at the design they just want to just sit and enjoy it for what it is so it's a very passive thing but what um what do you think inspires you about the particular designs that you do um i i think first of all very good question um i i, I believe you would probably have totally different answers from different designers and for me it always comes from a practical marketing what people need well, going back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, the minimal design, I had this interesting conversation with a professor in Kansas, which I knew about 25, 30 years ago. And we actually had a lengthy talk about today's world. And there's a huge psychological and social background to push with need of simplicity. Now, that is a huge pointer to the very first page of what I want to do about designing. Actually, I wasn't really known by anybody, even my own company, to do the, my current genre, which is, which is a little bit contemporary, a soft modern. I was actually was introduced, I was introduced in the company because uh, somebody said, I'm good at traditional designs. Actually, I was, I was okay when it comes to traditional wrought iron. You know, the thin black lines, the beautiful scrolls, the mission style, the, the Spanish style, those things. But to answer your question, I started off with what the market needs. Now, that's a bigger picture, right? That's a, that's a pr pretty, pretty big parameter. I have to define, because I, I'm a business owner, I have to run my business to survive. If I, if I make some silly mistakes, <laughs> I will be stuck in my inventory. I can't survive. Now, when it comes to specific designs, when it comes to a little bit professional language, or professional thinking about exactly what the shape of form I guess it's a little bit personal. I mean, within the parameter of what I believe I can sell, the next step when it comes to personalization, I think about classic looks and I think about classic feelings. Um, there's, 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 there's two, maybe there's two perspectives. Now you got me thinking. Number one is a, a landscape picture. In other words, I have to put patio furniture in a bigger picture of a landscape shot, meaning patio furniture is always a portion of a bigger picture with the surrounding being an exterior of a building, for example, a natural landscape scene. If you look at my backdrop, which is in Bishop, Northern California. I love it. <laughs> you have to have those things in your mind because patio furniture is just part of it. Again, that's the necessity of castaway ego. You have to think about the big, and I, and I believe the same thing applies to architecture, probably even more. How can you design architecture without having the landscape, the mountains, the rivers, the soil, the trees in your mind, right? 
it's essential. <laughs> exactly. It's so, essential. so the first way I, I think I look at things is it's what's what's this what's the surrounding, what's the what's the where am I designing this for? Is it for a restaurant? Is it for a country club? Is it is it a steakhouse by the beach? And then basically you, you rub those elements into the design. You come to a basic style. Then the second step is the details. I try to plug in different things. It has to be, it has to be classic. And, and then and there's a little bit of personal choice as well, as I, as I told you. I wanted my designs to be pleasant to the eyes from a distance, which is basically six to 10 feet away. Now, I came to this number when I, when I designed for residential which is exactly where people walk into a brick malta store. They look at the furniture, you know, you know, far away from, from they can really try the, the try and sit in comfort, which is about six to 10 feet away. Now, would that look interesting to a amateur human eye? It has to be, it has to look comfortable. It has to be pleasant to the eyes. The second criteria is when you really get close to it, in my mind, to my designs, most cases, I have to put in something that is applaudable, that is appreciable in the details. Yeah, I totally understand what you're saying because there's, there's two angles to it. You know, what you're basically surmising is there's an overall style, of a kind of visual kind of cadence or feel to the mm -hmm. furniture, you know, so in, in the landscape. But when you get closer to the furniture, it, there's an appreciation of some of the detail. And it doesn't have to be intricate detail. It can be just something like a small curve or a small angle or something, some of the relationship. Yes, and, and details does not necessarily have to be dimensionally small. If you know what I'm talking about. I do understand that, yeah. It doesn't have to be a, a tiny logo that is one-eighth of an inch diameter. Detail could be a, a slight change of a curve. It, it could be a slight angle, but from a distance, you know it's tapered. But exactly how it's tapered, leave that to me. <laughs> you as a consumer don't have to worry about that. <laughs> right? You know, and again, I totally get this because it's about ratios and proportions as well, you see, because what we don't realize is the language that we don't visually um, interpret, you know, out loud. It's something that we do very subconsciously. So to so take Apple, for instance, mm. we look at their designs. There's a certain ethos that goes all the way through their designs. If it's not the color, it's the curve, right. it's, you know, the radius of the curve, it's the proportional relationship to the, the logo, to the edge of the, the unit that you're looking at. And and that's the point about design. It's, it's the things that are unsaid or not absolutely kind of laid out in front of you right. because it becomes a feeling when you see it again you recognize it very sublimely sometimes it's not visually sometimes i don't even know exactly sometimes you know it, it, <laughs> seriously i mean I, I i do not consider myself as a as a good designer at all i mean seriously i'm just trying but oh come on uh, come on paul don't give us that crap come on you know no, not really really i i you have no idea how much i doubt myself but, but, but the trick... No, listen, hold a second. Hold a second. I'm going to challenge you on that, right? The reason I'm going to challenge you is I think every designer suffers from that feeling, right? Every yes. designer does, yes, okay? Do. But here's the difference, right? Good designers continue to push through and pursue an end goal. And what I noticed with your furniture is that you pursue that end goal. There is a certain cadence, there's a certain feel to it, and there's a certain sort of uh, rhythm to it, which I really, really like. So I think you're really underselling you. yourself. And I don't think you should do that, right? <laughs> because because I think at the end of the day, you've hit something. When I look at that picture behind you, I think 
that's Paul's friendship. I recognise <laughs> you see, and I think you, I think you're there. So I think in a way you're catching for compliments a little bit, as I would always say in Britain. You know, we were saying, don't uh, start that. It, you know, come yeah. on, be a bit no, more bold. Well, <laughs> I, I do, I, I do. I'm not necessarily criticise myself. I do, lots of times, you know doubt about it. You know, what the heck do I know? I, I, I've been clinging on to a design for two bloody weeks, what in time, and I couldn't, there's just nothing coming out of it. Uh, well, maybe I've, I do have a little bit of a high bar because I, I, I want the design to be authentic. I want the design to be you know, making sense in cost and marketing. Actually, another perspective of it is designing for a specific business is so much more than designing itself. What I mean is when I was a full-time designer, it was a simple job. There's a project, here's the budget, design for it, see if it hits. Right now, I'm designing for my own brand. I have all the feedbacks from the sales team. I have to design in terms of look, I have to design the cost, I have to design the stackability, I have to design for the ease of assembly, and I have designed in a way that I'm not repeating myself with my other chairs, which is a big challenge. And then, and then speaking on that, I used to design for um, the big box retailers. In those days, we were cranking out, and I have to say, it's, it's sometimes it's about quantity. We're cranking out three to four chair designs each day when sitting down there. Back in the old days, we're just doing pencil sketches and a, and an eraser. Best way, best way. Right now, I'm doing like one design for three and four months. Literally, I feel like I was telling my my other design friend of mine, like like when I did for the big box retailers. I mean, no offense, because it's the nature of their business. Because every single year, they change out like you know maybe fifty percent of the designs. Right now, for my brand, deeper pocket budgets, may I say, I feel like I was drawing things on a napkin piece of paper in a restaurant in my past, and now I'm carving things in a bloody rock. I love it. I love that analogy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I have to think about so many things. I want the design to last at least 10 years. I look at designs by Richard Finney and Richard Schultz. You know, you know, I hope my designs can last more than I do. And when I think about it, it's, it's a pretty darn hard buy, isn't it? <laughs> you're halfway through listening to On Another Trap with me, David Wilson. You're listening to my guest, Paul Dwan, this week. And what a great guest he is. Quite dynamic, quite different, and a typical designer. But next, I wanted to ask Paul a little bit more about his background and his family, where they came from. And also, was anybody an inspiration for him as he was growing up? My childhood, nothing to do with design. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> However, I was raised in a... In a very happy family, I have a brother. I have an older brother, two and a half years older than I am. My father and mother were in the technical circle um, when they were younger. I was raised in, a, I would say, almost in the big bubble. Um, you know, back in China, they had the Cultural Revolution between 66 and 76, which affected a lot of families. My family, you know, lucky enough, had basically zero impact. We didn't suffer anything from that um, culturally or financially. We're, we're, we're very well, not wealthy at all, but uh, I was raised in a family, in a bigger family, in a circle where I didn't have to worry about anything. My childhood, um, maybe a little bit related to my character and everything. I put it this way, David, I could only remember blue skies and beautiful sunsets in my entire childhood. 
it, there's basically zero that is negative that I can ever think of my entire childhood between seven and 14. I literally walked down a little creek with a little stick in my hand, <laughs> throwing, throwing stones at that creek and trying to kill the fish, <laughs> chase the wild ducks and everything. You know, I, I walked the string down to my elementary school and walk against the string up and climb up halfway to a little hill where, where I live. And um, I still remember the occasions where, even when I was hospitalized a couple of times, the nurses and doctors were so nice to me. And, and, and they liked me for, for whatever bloody reason. They, they, they liked me. I was the kid. I was the favorite kid. So the nurse would give me extra milk every single morning. <laughs> and, and, and she got criticized by the captain of the nurses. And, and I remember my father told me the captain of the nurses was, was an older lady. She was basically blaming the young nurse. You're not supposed to do that to anybody. You're supposed to treat all the kids equally. <laughs> so that's how I was treated. I learned later they definitely had their conflicts between husband and wife. But basically, I, I put it this way: I wish lots of people, more people, will have a peaceful and warm childhood as I did. Oh, absolutely! And just to clarify again for our listeners, where specifically was the family from in China? Were you in Taiwan or actually in Central China? Itself? Oh, the mainland, mainland, mainland. I was raised in a, a province called Fujian, which is a province right across the Taiwan Strait, opposite to Taiwan. And that is the southern part of China. And then um, at the age of 11, I moved to middle China, which is where my father was born. When he left his job, and we, he kind of went back to his hometown place, which is middle of China. There, I went to university until I was about 18. And then I, I came to a couple of jobs. The first job is a a government related job in a university. I was, the, I was the guy taking care of the foreign teachers and I got tired of that. I mean, didn't get tired of taking your foreign teachers. I got tired of living in the system where you have to attend to lots of meetings. I have no idea what the heck those meetings are all about. We're just reading newspapers and I told myself, this is not it. This is not it, but 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 you know what, what, what we call it's a government job, right, David? Yeah. So yeah. so you know the, the the benefits of a government job is you don't have to worry about your income. The income's not high at all, but you have to worry about it. You must have medical insurance guaranteed. So I was there for a year and a half, and thanks to a very very negative experience with my then captain of my office, who I reported to, it was a horrible experience. He was taking advantage of the system that helped me to decide this is it. And, and I, I still clearly remember concluding that was not the problem of him as a person. It was the problem of the system. Absolutely. And that system was not for me. So then I quit. I thought about it for six months and I quit. And funny thing is, right after I quit, my, uh, my ex-associates um, from the same college, the government-run college, came to me, hey, Paul, you know what? We just raised our salary for two two times. We just have our houses. <laughs> I said, "Nah, I'm not going to regret that." Wow. So, so, but you, you made that was interesting because you know, for most people to try and understand the difference between the kind of socialist or you know the system we have in North America mm -hmm, as opposed mm -hmm. to the communist system. It, that was a great example of where you felt kind of almost trapped. You know, there's some people who just got into the system and never came out. Oh, yeah. Of it. it's, it's, it's very personal. It's very personal. Yeah, absolutely. But you had the impetus to get out of that, which was really interesting. So what was your next move? How did you 
you know, start to branch out? The next job, I came to a construction company, literally designing highway bridges. I remember that was the time and I got myself into AutoCAD drawings. We're literally drawing the angles of building the bridges across the canyons and such. That's where I pick up my, my knowledge when it comes to Excel and calculation and mathematics a little bit. And AutoCAD as well. Remember it well. Yeah. AutoCAD. AutoCAD. And I was, I, was in, I was one of the kids who was calculate the cubic meters of dirt and soil that people have to dig out you know, to build a bridge whatsoever. And I was there for about a year or so, and then I moved on to hospitality. I found myself as a secretary of the financial controller of a hotel by the name of Sofitel. You know what Sofitel is, right? No, well, yeah, Sofitel's yeah. all over the world, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so Sofitel is like the highest brand of a hotel chain. So it's like the Westin of some other chains. Yeah. Anyway, so, so I found myself the secretary of financial controller. I was the only boys secretary to be, that's very interesting. With that experience, I learned a lot about secretarial jobs. Uh, it, was a, it was very, there was competition about something. And I was competing with all the other girls. And I won. And I won, <laughs> David. So funny, isn't and it? I was the, <laughs> was the only boy. So, and I won. And I learned a lot about, you know, the financial related knowledges. And then I offended somebody. Okay, it was a, it was a Sofitel management team managing a Chinese ownership hotel. So the management, the top management was Chinese, local, even a little bit of a government related, but they're professionally managed by the Sofitel foreign managers team. It was a very international team. Put it this way, the chief engineer, German. Listen to this. I think you probably imagine the rest of it. Uh, executive chef, very, very cocky and arrogant French, <laughs> right? Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. Housekeeping manager, Filipino. Um, Chinese sous chef, Hong Kongese. There you go. Okay. Bakery, Australian Chinese. And uh, general manager, Australian. Deputy manager, Hong Kongese. I offended one. <laughs> this is a funny story. I offended the management office by, uh, they, they were trying to reach their hands over my shoulder, my, my boss, the financial controller's office's folder. And they wanted me to print out some contract. And there's definitely something going on underneath the table. And I was, I was the kid. I didn't know anything. I was, okay, I'm not supposed to do that. I won't print the contract for you until my boss told me so. I don't care who you are. I didn't say those words, but I didn't really care. And then next thing I know, they want to fire me. <laughs> wow. And then this, they want to fire me and then listen to this. And the executive chef, the cocky, arrogant French chef came out and say, all right. You want to fire this kid? You point out to that page of the employee handbook what article he violated. If you can point him out to that page, I'll agree to that. Of course, they didn't point out anything. So, but then, but then there's too powerful from somebody above the top that even the GM couldn't protect me. So, and, and I learned how to learn about that, you know, a long time, a long time ago that. They have to pick me. Somebody will have to pick me from the foreign management team. Then the executive chef picked me. And I find out myself to be the head of the steward team. Do you know what chief steward does? Yeah. The chief, chief, steward. Steward, chief steward is in a, in a hotel. It was the head of cleaning the back kitchen. So they thought, now nah, I've kicked that kid. 
to, you know, tell him to, 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 to malt the bloody kitchen. <laughs> so I did, but I was too naive. I didn't know anything. I only ended up learning a great deal working in the back kitchen. I led a team of 35 people. It was a huge hotel. Incredible. It was a team of 35 people. I got to manage all, all, the, all the chemicals. I got to manage all the tools. I get to learn about managing people in a PR basis. So, yeah, it was a hell of an experience. And then my next job was furniture-related. Okay, let's fast forward a little bit because now we, we got into the furniture sphere. How, how did you make the decision about coming to North America? How did that evolve? I quit my job because I, I feel like it was hitting a clear roof, so to speak. I was doing a lot of things. I was doing R&D design. I was quoting and I was like, I could do more. And then people knew me in this, in this industry. So when I post something on LinkedIn, as I'm looking for a new job, a uh, big box retailers headquarters, somebody who, who used to deal with me found out and, and she was nice enough to make the recommendation in, in my business circle. Uh, so people came to me and they said, what do you want? Um, a lot of people, different people came to me and said, I said, with my knowledge towards the North American market, because I was at that point, I was very much into de designing. And, and I said, I found myself more into American market. I, I, I believe I can do more when I'm literally in here instead of in a studio of a factory. So I said, okay, you know, if you can help me, you know, um, um, legally move over there. Um, I, I see myself being able to, to produce and put together more thing that is useful. And here's this company um, offering that I, that I tag them on. I moved to um, LA in, back in 2015. Again, I feel very, very thankful to my past employer, even though I, I quit their job after four and a half years. So I moved my family over here about six years ago. Just to explain to the listeners as well, what was the process of, of moving to another country coming from China? Because is it being made a lot easier over the years where you can now travel uh, outside of China with no real restrictions? It's a very lengthy topic, but basically there's 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 different type of visa. And I, and I was in a special working visa, L1. It's for international managers. You have to be at level of VP in a big international company. It's very complicated. It's, it's, and, then, and with the different visa natures, um, you, you have different paths. Got you. Got you. That's fair enough. So it's basically a working visa. So if somebody wanted to see the type of work that you do, What's the best way of actually kind of seeing that? Have you got a website that you can let us know about? Yeah, it's, it's www.pauldwancreations.com. It's P-A-U-L-D-U-A-N creations.com. And just to clarify as well, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, can they get hold of you through the website or there, is there a really good email address or LinkedIn uh, that we can get you on? I have to put everything public. So you'll be able to find my emails and phones on my website and, um, and LinkedIn. I have all the information. I, I do have a, a representative team, a, a wonderful team. So if a customer is in a certain area, they can reach directly to uh, my reps. Of course, I'm open to, to, to communications direct, directly with any customers. So if somebody was looking for a piece of furniture, for instance, for their particular business, so there may be a hotel, a country club or something like that, mm -hmm. um, do you actually take on those instructions to actually design 
bespoke furniture, individual pieces of furniture for a particular client? Or are you uh, the, more mainly the other way? You do the designs and then sell it to the industry. Is that is which way do you normally do business? It's the it's the latter one. Basically, they buy from what I have. Oh, that's good. I just wanted to clarify that. Yes, I have physical inventory here in Southern California when people buy, which is a big ticket because right now you probably know that the the, the the insanity of the supply chain is still very very challenging people are talking about lead time about 18 weeks 25 weeks 30 weeks and 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 the big ticket with my current program is that we have stock that we can ship immediately we have a lead time of about two to five days wow that's brilliant compared to yeah but but you know, it's there's a cost to it. I'm running my own risk. Of course, because you, you're keeping stock. But the, the great thing about it is if somebody contacts you today in, say, two to four weeks, they can have that piece of furniture wherever they need it in North America. Yeah, we ship across the country. We literally, when we, when we collect the payment, we usually ship out within two to three working days. Fantastic. That's, that's what I call service, by the way. That's superb. Okay, listen, I just, I've got a couple of more questions before we finish. The first one really is... If you were looking at your crystal ball and you were looking at furniture design for the next five or 10, 15 years, where do you see some of the cutting edge stuff going or coming from? Where, where do you see some of the inspirations coming from? Where do you see it going? Well, the big thing right now is environmentally oriented material, which is very, very trendy. And this trend is only going to go up. The same thing with EVs, the same thing with electric cars, right? Um, so that is a huge movement. I think a lot of decision-making is data-driven, right? And I think this, no, actually, it is related to design. A lot of things right now is data-driven, meaning a lot of time is the computer, is the, is the great data that tells designer or decision-makers what to do, what will sell. Okay, that sells in the past six weeks. Let's do more than that. Now, even in, even in the design world, there are new terminologies like transitional, traditional. It is actually a combination between transitional and traditional, meaning people are ripping off the characters. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. People are trying to cut off or hew off the little tiny branches of personalities and genres and differences. They believe the more they can cut those things off, the safer the sales will, will be. I think that big trend might hit something. I don't know how exactly it's going to hit. I think maybe when people walk out of pandemic, when people feel a little bit more optimistic about the whole, whole economy, people are going to look for difference. People are going to look for personality. Uh, what I think will happen, is I hope that there's more room for a bit of a applaudable personality down the road instead of the current blind chasing of the mainstream. I, I loved your expression, applaudable. It's applaudable. It's something that can be put up there and, and actually, well, I suppose the word would be um, admired in many ways, not just purely for the function, but for the actual overall design. And I love that applaudable design. The word admire doesn't apply to my designs. The, the best, the highest I can look for is applaudable. <laughs> but, but, but great, you know, that, that ticks one of the boxes. That's the thing. Final, final, final question before we go. If you were looking at your 18-year-old self again, looking back, mm -hmm. if, you were, if you were next to him on the bus, 
What would you advise them to do now that you've got the knowledge in life? What would be some of the things that you would advise? Actually, I don't know. I mean, it's it's easy to think. Is you've got a ton of things you want to talk to your eighteen year old self. I, I don't know. I mean, actually, I'm I'm going to give you this bad answer. Not a hell of different than I did, because I, I bumped into you know so many different things. You know, when I graduate, I was one of the lucky kids who knew to learn. And if I didn't learn, I would tell myself to learn. And I was one of the lucky kids who did. I didn't learn too much, I mean, from the books, but I, I learned about the right at attitude towards the unknown. So to answer your question, keep bumping around. <laughs> and, and still and still have that inquiring mind that's really what you were saying still be interested in things and inquire you keep interesting yeah i would i would probably say keep exploring keep being interested keep that good habit of wanting to learn and keep being anxious and and you know what there's there's probably one small piece be humble you would you would find that word in my website multiple times love it be humble you're going to benefit a great law throughout your life. I need to work on that sometimes, but um, at least for a designer, I think it's one of the critical things. Be curious, be humble, keep bumping around. Um, there's no problem failing. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, listen, it's been a real pleasure to interview you for On Another Track. I found your story so, so interesting, and it was great to sort of see the different aspects of the culture from China as well. Right. Um, but thank you again, and uh, I really appreciate you taking your time out of the day to to come and speak to uh, to myself. And uh, my pleasure. I wish you the best of luck with your furniture sales, and uh, I think you're going to go from strength to strength. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me, David. Take it steady. All right. Bye. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Paul Dwan of Paul Dwan Creations creating great designs that stand the test of time. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.